0: also with other interesting guests. Then, listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
1: podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast! podcast.
4: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
5: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
4: So, when I was researching our recent two parter on emergency medicine, I stumbled across a line about the secret surgery that Grover Cleveland had while he was in office. And I thought, well, that goes on the list.
5: Yeah, as soon as you mentioned it to me, I was like, that sounds amazing.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And I I started just kind of side reading about it, even while I was still working on that episode, because I was so intrigued. And the more I learned about it, the more fascinated I became. So that is what we are talking about today. A quick heads up for the very squeamish. We're going to talk a little bit about surgery here, and there will be some details just for like to contextualize what an achievement this whole thing was, but we will not get super-duper graphic. Like, I would only say worry about it if you are very, very squeamish.
5: So, today we're going to talk about events that happened during Grover Cleveland's second term as president. He's the only president in the U.S. to have served two terms, but not consecutively. He started his first term after being sworn in on March 4th, 1885.
4: And that first term was really busy. Uh, He vetoed 414 bills during it, including aid packages to farmers who needed literal seed money after the drought had destroyed their crops and left them without seed for the next planting cycle. But Cleveland wrote that bailing out the farmers would, quote, weaken the sturdiness of our national character.
5: He also got married in June of 1886. That was to 21-year-old Frances Folsom. He had known Frances, who was 28 years younger than he was since she was a child. He had been good friends with her father. Frances was the youngest first lady in U.S. history, and she was vastly different from her husband. She charmed virtually everyone because she was very kind and witty. Uh, Grover, on the other hand, could be brusque and prone to outrage uh, the president became so frustrated by the constant press coverage that he and his bride got his newlyweds that he started writing angry letters to various newspapers. Uh, yeah,
4: he uh, was not enthused with the press in general for a variety of reasons. But Frances, I mean, from the moment she arrived... In the executive mansion because it was not being called the White House yet at that point. Like the entire staff sort of fell in love with her and would do anything for her. And part of that charm of hers was why reporters were constantly following them because everyone was really fascinated by her and adored her. When
5: Cleveland ran
4: for re-election in 1888, he lost to Benjamin Harrison. And Cleveland actually won the popular vote, but lost in the Electoral College. And as the Clevelands left the executive mansion, Francis reportedly told the staff members to take care of the furniture and remember where everything was because they were going to be back in four years. And that is a mighty bold exit line, but she was not wrong.
5: During the four years after he left office, Grover Cleveland moved to New York City, He dabbled in law practice, but slowly found himself being drawn back into politics. The 1890 midterm elections had seen a lot of Democratic victories, and that made him think it would be worth running again, and he believed that the, quote, dangerous and reckless experiment of shifting so much financial backing into silver had opened up the door for a pro-gold candidate like himself. Uh, We'll be talking more about that in just a bit. And this wasn't,
4: incidentally, a position that everyone, even within his party, was in agreement with. There was a large chunk of the Democratic Party at the time that favored the moves that had been made into favoring silver. And there were plenty of predictions that, in being so assertive of his stance on the matter, was probably going to cost Grover Cleveland the nomination.
5: But it did not. The campaign itself was actually quiet. Harrison's wife was ill with tuberculosis, and he did not want to be on the campaign trail. Cleveland thought it would be odd to campaign when everyone knew that the president couldn't because of a family illness. And that ultimately ended with with Caroline Harrison's death in October of 1892. So she died not long before the election. Due largely to the issue of the national budget, Cleveland won, and Harrison seemed pretty relieved about that.
4: And this actually created uh, a unique situation because Grover Cleveland uh, then had to discuss the presidential transition as he entered office with President Benjamin Harrison in an exact role reversal of what had happened when Cleveland left office after his first term four years prior, and it was Harrison who had had to come to him to work out the details regarding the handover of power.
5: So to contextualize the situation that Grover Cleveland was facing during the second term... The nation was in the middle of a financial crisis. There had been several banking panics in the decades leading up to the 1890s, but the Panic of 1893 was much larger in scope. It caused deeper fears of instability in the U.S. than the previous two had done. Those earlier panics had taken place in 1884 and 1890.
4: Starting several years before 1893, there had been a severe dip in the gold reserves held by the U.S. Treasury. In 1890, the U.S. Treasury had $190 million in gold. In 1893, that number had dwindled to $100 million. And the cause of that dip is related to some of the story that we told in our previous episode about silver magnate James G. Fair. As Fair and his fellow silver kings were amassing huge fortunes in silver, and as gold was getting harder to find, there was this shift in thinking that silver might be a more worthwhile
5: monetary standard than gold. Also in 1890, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act was passed. This law called for the U.S. Treasury to start making more significant investments in silver acquisition. That led to fears that the United States would abandon the gold standard, the system by which treasury notes were directly linked to gold value and could be exchanged for that amount of gold. As a consequence, the demand for gold skyrocketed as people traded in their treasury notes before the value could become unstable. This was almost like a rush on the bank, except with the federal treasury.
4: Yes, but there were also runs on the bank, uh, because this situation kind of folded in on itself. As the Treasury's gold dwindled, there were concerns that there was going to be a freeze put on the ability to exchange notes for their value in gold, and that possibility only drove people to do it more. And then there were runs on banks throughout the country because nervous account holders thinking the economy was going to collapse wanted to withdraw all their funds.
5: Additionally, in the 1880s, a number of things happened that would impact U.S. finances in the 1890s. For one, a drought started in the late 1880s that severely impacted the farming industry, especially in the Midwest. Many farmers were unable to pay their debts because of the losses that were incurred and the value of their land dropped. And at the
4: same time, the 1880s had been this period of really rapid economic expansion in the U.S., Railroads and mining operations were big drivers for this economic expansion, but as a consequence, both of these industries grew really rapidly to the point that they were beyond realistic financial sustainability as they were speculating on future growth with way overinflated projections. On February 23rd, 1893, the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad declared bankruptcy, and this signaled to the entire nation, if anybody was in doubt up to that point, that the situation was really dire.
5: Grover Cleveland was sworn into office for his second term just 10 days later on March 4th. While the usual events associated with the Inauguration Day did take place, that was the swearing-in ceremony, the parade, which included women for the first time, and the Inaugural Ball— attendance at all of this was really low. It was an awful day, weather-wise. It was windy with some sleet. But more than anything, the country was just not in the mood to party.
4: Yeah, there are stories of, like, all of these Grover Cleveland souvenir stands being, like, all over Washington, D.C., which if you've ever been to an inauguration day, that's very common. And, like, nobody was buying. They were just standing there going, I guess we're going to have a lot of Grover Cleveland merchandise forever. Uh, Cleveland's administration set to work on the problems that it had inherited immediately, and this was, of course, a huge undertaking. As the finances of the nation teetered in uncertainty, the newly sworn-in president was dealing with not just railroad closures, but also banks failing, as we said, unemployment, a really rocky stock market, and foreign investors that were also becoming nervous and taking their money out of U.S. interests. On April 23rd, the president authorized the following statement, which circulated widely in papers around the country. This statement is pretty long, so Tracy, do you want to alternate
5: on it? Ah, uh, we can do that. I'll do this first bit. Quote, The inclination on the part of the public to accept newspaper reports concerning the intentions of those charged with the management of our national finances seems to justify my emphatic contradiction of the statement that the redemption of any kind of treasury notes, except in gold, has at any time been determined upon or contemplated by the Secretary of the Treasury or any other member of the present administration. The president and his cabinet are absolutely harmonious in the determination to exercise every power conferred upon them to maintain the public credit, to keep the public faith, and to preserve the parity between gold and silver and between all financial obligations of the government.
4: It goes on. While the law of 1890 forcing the purchase of a fixed amount of silver every month provides that the Secretary of the Treasury, in his discretion, may redeem in either gold or silver the Treasury notes given in payment of silver purchases, yet the declaration of the policy of the government to maintain the parity between the two metals seems so clearly to regulate this discretion as to dictate their redemption in gold.
5: And it concludes: quote, of course, perplexities and difficulties have grown out of an unfortunate financial policy which we found in vogue, and embarrassments have arisen from ill-advised financial legislation confronting us at every turn. But with cheerful confidence among the people and a patriotic disposition to cooperate, the threatened dangers will be averted, pending a legislative return to a better and sounder financial plan the strong credit of the country is still unimpaired and the good sense of our people, which has never failed in time of need, is at hand to save us from disaster.
4: So with this whole statement, Cleveland was really pushing to usher in the repeal of the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. That was a move that he was making in the hopes of regaining some stability during the crisis.
5: So as this was happening, there was a whole other situation playing out in Grover Cleveland's wife, outside of the political realm. And we will talk about that right after a quick sponsor break.
1: Start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: I used to have so many men.
3: About six million.
4: Approximately eleven million dollars.
3: Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed
6: her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients.
4: Hide your money in your old rich man, (laughs) because she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen
0: of the Con season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: So as we said before the break, as all of this was playing out with the panic, and as Cleveland was working to steer the nation through that financial panic, he had a more personal crisis brewing. He was soon to be a father, although that was not publicly known at the time uh, and was not considered a crisis. But his wife, Frances, was two months pregnant when President Cleveland took his second oath of office.
5: But the thing that would become more pressing was something that the president discovered 11 days after that April 23rd statement about repealing the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. On May 5th, 1893, he noticed a rough spot on the roof of his mouth. But really deep in the midst of running a country that was in a precarious state, he did not do anything about this initially.
4: But over the next six weeks, that rough spot turned into a lump that got bigger. Reportedly, the president was often up at night because of it, although whether that was from pain or from simply worrying about the situation is a little bit of an issue of speculation. He actually had his wife, Frances, look at it, and she was, as she put it, alarmed when I saw it. And so she made the decision that they had to get a doctor to look at it immediately.
5: The doctor was their regular physician, Dr. Joseph Decatur Bryant, Dr. Bryant was their family physician, but he also specialized in oral tumors, so it makes sense that Francis would reach outside the government's presidential resources and get him involved. Francis wrote to Dr. Bryant on June 18th to tell him that there was some sort of problem on the roof of her husband's mouth and that she would like to speak with the doctor the next day. Francis had errands on the 19th that took her to Jersey City, and she asked for a meeting there, In their brief visit, she told Dr. Bryant the details of this gross appearance and also that she was quite worried about it. The meeting ended with Bryant planning a trip to Washington, D.C. to examine the president.
4: Yeah, there are actually some theories that probably, um, when Grover Cleveland took office, that he would have asked Bryant because he was a, a trusted family friend and had been their family doctor to become the presidential doctor, but Bryant didn't want to leave his practice in New York. Uh, But there was, even while uh, Francis was meeting with Dr. Bryant, another doctor on the case. The president's dentist had seen the lesion, and so he contacted the president's doctor about it. That physician was Dr. Robert M. O'Reilly. And so he had examined the president's mouth, and he found that growth quite worrying as well. He wanted to have tissue from the growth tested, but without anyone knowing that the sample had come from the president's person. So he took a scraping and he sent it as an anonymous, sample to an army lab.
5: While the president's name was not on the sample, it did have a note that it was an incredibly important specimen, and that led pathologist Dr. William Welch to suspect that it was a sample of Grover Cleveland's tissue. That probably made it a lot more unpleasant for him to come to the conclusion at the end of this examination that the sample was from a malignant tumor.
4: And as that lab examination was happening of the tissue, Dr. Bryant had arrived in Washington and had seen President Cleveland himself. He described the tumor to his patient as, quote, a bad-looking tenant, and he told him that he should have it removed and very soon.
5: So, of course, this was terrible news, and not just because the president had a frightening cancerous growth that could jeopardize his health or maybe his life, also because cancer was really a PR nightmare at this point. People wouldn't even say the word cancer if they could avoid it in any way. They would use other euphemisms just to keep the name out of their mouths. This was, of course, almost 130 years ago. The medical establishment's understanding of cancer was a lot less robust than it is today, and there were not nearly as many treatment options. Saying someone had cancer at the time was almost like saying they were already dead. Society was just downright phobic about it, and there was serious stigma around it.
4: So for a president, and one only just a few months into his term, to have cancer was the kind of news that could cause a panic, in the midst of an already existing financial panic political adversaries, and even those with whom the president had tentative allyship could use that kind of information against him. And his effort to repeal the Sherman Silver Purchase Act could be completely ruined if people thought that he was in a weakened physical state.
5: Dr. Bryant thought the best course of treatment for President Cleveland was surgery. He and Dr. O'Reilly discussed the matter and then met with the president and the president's secretary of war and close friend, that was Dan Lamont, this quartet of men agreed right off the bat that the whole matter had to be kept entirely under wraps.
4: They were planning to do this surgery, though, so keeping it secret was a really complicated proposal. They had to perform the procedure somewhere very, very private. That automatically meant not a hospital. And it had to be done entirely with incisions inside the president's mouth so that no external scars would give the truth away. This also meant... and. Grover Cleveland was apparently adamant about this. That they could not shave his mustache. Uh, and while Cleveland's summer home in Massachusetts was introduced as a possible location for the surgery, it was pretty quickly dismissed because the press was often lurking nearby, especially if they knew the president was there. Eventually, the president introduced a very novel possibility. He could have the surgery on board the Oneida, a yacht owned by his friend Elias Benedict, and that the two had often taken out for fishing trips. The use of a boat was, of course, super risky, but because Cleveland had been on that boat many times, it would arouse zero suspicions for him to take a trip aboard it.
5: And while the doctors pressed for an immediate surgery, the president needed time to put some things in order before he could do it. This meeting took place on June 23rd, and the president agreed that he would be ready on July 1st. In the meantime, Dr. O'Reilly monitored his health, and Dr. Bryant put together a trustworthy surgical team Dan Lamont made sure all the president's arrangements in Washington were taken care of.
4: And Grover Cleveland, we should mention, was not a person who was in otherwise great health when this whole plan was forming. He had a taste for really rich food, which had caused him to develop gout. And he drank quite a bit, and he smoked. Uh, That initial rough spot that he felt was in the place where the end of his cigar usually sat in his mouth. He also likely had high blood pressure. So anesthesia alone was a risk, let alone going through a surgery. And at this point, remember, like, we are in the ether phase. Uh, We'll talk about that in a little bit. And there was this very real possibility that a more serious situation might reveal itself once that surgery was underway, if the growth was more expansive than had been apparent upon examination. So this whole thing was a significant risk. And the worst case scenario was that the president would die.
5: Bryant immediately reached out to a colleague named Dr. William Williams Keene, telling him that he wished to speak to him about a very important but private matter. In a scene that would be right at home in a spy thriller, Keene and Bryant met a few days later on the deck of an empty ferry. Bryant was totally straightforward and told Keene about the president's need for surgery, that the surgery had to happen in secret on a yacht, and that he wanted Keene to be on the surgical team. Keene was exactly the man you would want for this job, a very well-respected surgeon with an impeccable reputation who had been leading the medical field in the very new concept of brain surgery. Keene didn't vote for Grover Cleveland, but he had a great respect for the office, and after a moment of thought on the matter, he agreed to participate. There was, as we said, just a huge risk for the president, but for a surgeon like Keene at the top of his profession, there was also a great deal of risk, If something went wrong, his reputation, which had been built over years of work and study, would probably just crumble around him.
4: Bryant recruited additional surgeons to be part of the secret presidential surgery team. Dr. Edward Janeway, who was a professor of surgery at Bellevue Hospital Medical College, dentist Dr. Ferdinand Hasbrook, who had an advanced knowledge of anesthesia as it existed at the time, and then Bryant's assistant, Dr. John Erdman. The plan was that Bryant would be the lead surgeon, with Keene and Erdman assisting. Dr. Hasbrook would handle any tooth extractions that would need to be performed and would also manage anesthesia along with Dr. O'Reilly. And Dr. Janeway would be in charge of monitoring the patient throughout.
5: Bryant also made all preparations for the yacht to be ready for this mission. The yacht had a saloon, and it was decided that it would be transformed into an operating room. The furniture was removed and the space was disinfected. A chair was brought in for the president to sit in throughout the procedure. Special equipment and deliveries were explained away by Dr. Bryant to the ship's crew. They were told the president was going to have a tooth extraction on board. And because the crew were accustomed to the president both being there and needing various special arrangements, they seemed to accept this explanation.
4: So coming up, we're going to talk about the surgery itself, and we'll get into that after we first take a quick break and hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. President Cleveland began to wonder more and more about the after effects of this whole plan. It had already been explained to him that he was going to lose part of his jaw in the process, and he had Dan Lamont reach out to Dr. Bryant to ask if his speaking voice was going to be impacted by the surgery. The president also wanted to know how soon he could resume his duties and begin meeting with politicians, because this whole silver issue was still in the mix. And what he was really asking was how soon he could do his job without anybody realizing that the president had had surgery.
5: So Bryant explained that initially the president's speech would be different, but that he was working with a prosthodontist who would make an artificial jaw that could fix the problem. And as for meetings, it was going to take a month for the president to recover. He tried to be clear that this was an estimate, presuming everything went well. He did withhold some information, though, so that he didn't add stress to the situation Specifically, he did not bring up the possibility that they might need to remove a section of skull above the jaw if it turned out the cancer had spread farther than they realized.
4: Yeah, his logic in that was like, if we have to do that, there's no covering this up anyway. So I may as well not even tell him because I can't give him any kind of assurance that we can keep a secret at that point. In the meantime, President Cleveland worked really furiously to handle as much of his work ahead of the trip on the Oneida as he could. This is something he was known for having was a very cluttered desk, and he was really trying to get it completely cleared off. And then late in the afternoon on June 30th, he and Lamont traveled by train in a private car to Jersey City, and from there they took a ferry to Manhattan, and then they made the final leg to Pier A in a carriage— And then there, they boarded a small boat which took them to the Oneida, which was waiting in the East River. When a reporter approached him during the ferry ride, the president said that he was just going to his summer house for a rest.
5: The doctors were already on board. They had all arrived that afternoon, all leaving Manhattan from different piers so that they did not draw attention. All the men spent a cordial evening together before retiring to bed. The next morning started with a physical exam of the president, which Dr. Janeway conducted. He was happy with the president's vitals, so Janeway gave him a mouth disinfectant to prep him for the surgery.
4: There had been a brief hope that the doctors would be able to use nitrous oxide for the surgery rather than resorting to ether, due to the more dangerous nature of ether and possible poor reactions to it. But they realized that the tumor was bad enough that that was simply not going to work. So the decision was made that they would start with nitrous, and then they would transition to ether if they needed to. After the pre-surgery checks and a little bit of breakfast, the Oneida started its journey. And once the yacht passed into the Long Island Sound, they all made their way to the saloon-turned-surgical suite.
5: Just after noon, the doctors, along with the ship's steward, Charles Peterson, who was assisting in a non-medical capacity, started an unprecedented operation on the president. The patient did not respond well to the nitrous oxide. It took a double dose to get him unconscious, which meant that ether was going to have to be used eventually.
4: The procedure began with two teeth being removed. Those were the bicuspids on his upper left jaw. Once those teeth had been pulled by the dentist, the removal of the tumor began, although it appeared for a brief moment that the president was actually waking up. So that meant that they all had to stop what they were doing while additional gas was administered and then resume once the patient was fully under again. Once the cutting of the soft palate was complete, the president was given ether before the damaged bone and surrounding tissue were removed.
5: The cancer had spread more than had been expected, but it did not affect one of the areas they had been most concerned about, which was the eye socket. Ultimately, a section of the upper jaw, several more teeth, and a section of hard palate were also removed. It was over roughly 90 minutes after it started.
4: President Cleveland started waking up just before 3 p.m., obviously and unsurprisingly in pain. He was given morphine and then taken, with great effort because he was a large man, to his cabin. And the rest of the day, one of the doctors was always with him, checking his vitals and standing by should he awaken. His mouth was packed with gauze, so even when he did try to speak a little bit, it was pretty rough going trying to understand him. But by evening, he was deemed to be in stable condition, which was a huge relief to everyone. And then the next day, he was even better. He was actually able to walk around the ship a bit.
5: So uh, you recall earlier they had told a reporter he was on the way to his summer home, and when the Oneida had not docked in Buzzards Bay, Massachusetts, which was where that summer home was by Independence Day, press started to wonder where he really was. But he had said he was getting some rest, and they had not seen anything of him. So while there were rumors among the reporters that something might be up, they just really didn't have anything to report. A few papers did run articles that speculated that something might be wrong with the president, Mrs. Cleveland phoned the papers to tell them that her husband was fishing and that all was well.
4: Yeah, she kind of very politely was like, please stop printing things suggesting there's something wrong with my husband. Um, Meanwhile, Dr. Hasbrook, the dentist, had left the yacht on July 2nd for another appointment. Late on July 4th, like late in the evening, the rest of the surgical team was let off at Sag Harbor, although Bryant just went ashore at Sag Harbor briefly and then returned to the yacht after a quick supply run. And then he and Cleveland traveled on to Buzzards Bay, where the first lady, who at this point was seven months pregnant, was waiting at Gray Gables, which is the name of their summer home. The president, Dr. Bryant and Dan Lamont, finally arrived there on late July 5th. Lamont issued a statement to the press that they had simply been pretty leisurely about their travel and that they had stayed out on the water longer than they had initially planned because the fishing was so good that they didn't want to come in. And to address the health rumors, he said that the president had been dealing with a bout of rheumatism, but nothing more.
5: But rumors had already started spreading in New York that the president had a growth in his mouth. The reporter managed to get Dr. Bryant when he was outside the house, but the doctor just corroborated the whole rheumatism story and ended the interview when questions about a tumor and surgery started. The reporter published the entire conversation. But as time wore on and Bryant and Lamont stuck to their stories, the press eventually bought it and by July 8th started reporting that the president was recovering from some minor tooth malady and nothing more ominous than that. Yeah,
4: they let... the two things slip in a little bit since they had already told the ship's crew that.
5: Uh, It's
4: like, oh, he just had to get some teeth pulled. It's no big. On July 10th, the president was recovered enough to go out fishing with Lamont and Bryant on his sailboat, which was named the Ruth, presumably for his toddler daughter. They had a child already while they were pregnant with their second and during his stay at Gray Gables, prosthodontist Cassin Gibson had set up a little lab at the house, and he was able to cast the president's mouth and make a vulcanized plate that plugged the hole that had been left by the surgery. And this plate also made Cleveland's cheek and face look normal, and all of this helped sell the ruse that he had never been seriously ill.
5: Sometime in mid-July, Bryant noticed during an examination of Cleveland's mouth that there was another growth at the edge of the surgical wound The entire team was brought back except for Dr. Hasbrook, who had leaked the story in New York. Once again, they used the operating room on the Oneida on July 17th. The procedure seems to have been short and uncomplicated, and to the outside world, it had appeared that the president had just gone on a day trip with his friend Benedict.
4: Yeah, that one was so quick that it was like a normal overnight trip. He was back the next morning. But as the president's life was returning to something that looked like normal and he was starting to take meetings again, a New York reporter named E.J. Edwards was on the case. It turned out that when Dr. Hasbrook had taken the job, he had done so with the understanding that he was going to be able to leave the Oneida right after the surgery and make another appointment where he had promised to handle anesthesia. But because he was dropped off on July 2nd, instead of July 1st, which is what he had initially asked for, he was so late to the procedure that it was canceled. And to explain his absence, he spilled the beans on the president's secret surgery. And in turn, the man that he told shared that information, and it made its way to the reporter Edwards.
5: Edwards carefully checked out this story, and it did not run until August 23rd when it appeared in the Philadelphia Press under the headline, quote, The President, a very sick man. An operation performed on him on Mr. Benedict's yacht. Part of the jaw removed.
4: Yeah, he had a lot of the details 100% right. There were a few things that weren't quite accurate and... The dentist had only named himself and Dr. Bryant, so the other doctors' names were at least left out of it. But in going to press with this story, Edwards was gambling, and ultimately he lost. Although his story was picked up by The Wire and newspapers everywhere, the president, of course, flatly denied it. And because there was a lot of competition amongst papers, there were other outlets perfectly willing to defend the story that the president was fine— and flat-out accuse E.J. Edwards of lying and just making this entire thing up. Alexander McClure, editor of rival paper The Philadelphia Times, was friends with Grover Cleveland, and he helped to discredit
5: Edwards. To help with his version of the story, which was that he was in perfect health, the president, who had been kind of reclusive despite the raging war going on over silver in Washington, D.C., had started making some really obvious public outings. He would even take Francis who was due to deliver a baby at any day on a train trip from Buzzards Bay to Washington.
4: So, as the Sherman Silver Purchase Act was facing repeal, which did eventually happened, and he was making a good recovery and welcoming his second daughter into the world, Grover Cleveland found that the press was more willing to give him the benefit of the doubt than this reporter E.J. Edwards, and the controversy over the story deeply damaged the reporter's reputation, although he did continue to work in reporting.
5: Grover Cleveland died on June 24, 1908, and the secret keepers regarding the events on the Oneida in 1893 were also aging and dying. When Dr. Bryant died in 1914, that left only three living men who knew the entire truth. They were John Erdman, Elias Benedict, and Dr. William Keene. Finally, in 1917, with permission from Grover Cleveland's widow, who by then had remarried, Keene published the true account of what happened in the September 22nd Saturday Evening Post. It was a sensation because it cleared up so many mysteries that journalists had just accepted and moved on from back in 1893, and also because it vindicated Edwards.
4: Yeah, it was like, oh, that does make more sense. We totally accepted that rheumatism thing. But he really was gone for, like, four days with nobody knew where he was. Um, That tumor, incidentally, that was removed from President Cleveland's jaw is now in the collection of the Motor Museum. (laughs) Uh, Which is just a lovely piece of this story that makes me smile because, I don't know, I'm sick. (laughs) Um, I like a little medical oddity in a jar.
5: Yeah, me too. Uh,
4: Yeah, it's really fascinating. There are lots of other... um, Medical theories about the nature of this cancer and, you know, its causes and whatnot that I didn't get into. But those are pretty fascinating. And um, there is a really marvelous book, which was one of my sources for this, uh, by a journalist named Matthew Ald. I think it's Algio called The President is a Sick Man. Uh, it came out in 2011, and it tells this whole story and also the backstories of every person involved and and how it all played out in a whole lot of detail. So if you're interested in the deeper version of this story, I highly recommend it because his writing style is really, really lovely. It's a quick read, but very thorough. Uh, I super enjoyed it. But yeah, uh, one thing we should point out, which also does come up in, in Algio's book, is that this is certainly not the only time, neither the first nor the last, that a president Hit a sickness, Uh, but it is so spectacularly weird. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, That I just found it completely captivating.
5: Um, Do you have some listener mail for us?
4: I do. Uh, This is from our listener, Selena, and she is writing about um, our brief history of the Pieta, which we re-released recently as part of our Host Faves playlist for Pandemic Entertainment. And she wrote, I loved hearing the re-airing of this podcast. As always, you are informative as well as aware of religious background with your subjects, and I appreciate it. I wanted to add that the Vatican does have a replica of the Pieta that visited Toronto in 2002 for World Youth Day. I got to see it, along with many other Vatican art pieces, at the Royal Ontario Museum, and it was blocked from the public with only a rope. I had to remind myself not to touch. While seeing now-St. Pope John Paul II was the highlight of my week, the unexpected, breathtaking pleasure of seeing this masterpiece close enough to touch was a close second. You could actually see the chisel marks in Michelangelo's not-so-subtle signature. It was amazing. Um... Yeah, I don't know very much about that replica cast, but I think that's a cool way to share this piece of art uh, in a way that's not quite as dangerous as trying to move it again, yeah. like the original. <laughs> uh, so thank you for that information, Selena. Uh, I, I kind of want to look up where that thing is now and if it continues to tour, but I have not done so yet. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And we would love it if you would subscribe to the show. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen.